Hello there. Back again, sooner than possibly anyone would have imagined, with uh, two new book reviews. The first one is for Rebecca Solnit's new coming book. It's called Whose Story Is This? Old Conflicts, New Chapters. Uh, I see this as a 150-page long analytical monograph about sexism before, during and after Me Too. Um, during my reading of this, I took a lot of notes. I usually take notes while reading books, especially if I have them in digital form. Um, I'd made exactly 150 notes when I'd finished this book, which says something about how it actually engaged, horrified and enthralled me. Rebecca Solnit's writing style is quite closely connected to those of Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. The subject matter may seem scary and dire, but they manage to ring optimism and point out critical things that make you think twice, even a third time around. Solnit writes tersely and yet conversationally. One can easily inject most of the sentences that she ends paragraph with into any conversation and come out sounding like Oscar Wilde. Here are some quotes. One measure of how much power these voices and stories have is how frantically others try to stop them. Another quote. Comfort is often a code word for the right to be unaware, the right to have no twinges of one's conscience, no reminders of suffering, the right to be a we whose benefits are not limited by the needs and rights of any them. Another quote. Perhaps the actual problem is that white, Christian, suburban, small town and rural America includes too many people who want to live in a bubble and think they are entitled to, and that all of us who are not like them are considered menaces and intruders who need to be cleared out of the way. One of Solnit's key benefits is how she calls out people for what they have done. In this sense, one could call her a historian who won't allow history to be written by the ham-fisted majority. Newspapers and magazines have often been called the attack based against women and other assailed parties, and she won't let them rest. Just see these two examples of the Atlantic and the New York Times, respectively. And I quote, One way we know whose story it has been gets demonstrated by who gets excused for hatred and attacks, literal or physical. Early in 2018, The Atlantic tried out hiring a writer, Kevin Williamson, who said women sh who have abortions should be hanged, and then unhired him under public pressure from people who don't like the idea that a quarter of American women should be executed for exercising jurisdiction over their own bodies. The New York Times had hired a few conservatives, conservatives akin to Williamson, including climate waffler Brett Stevens. Stevens devoted a column to sympathy on Williamson's behalf and indignation that anyone might oppose him. And then the next quote about the New York Times. This misdistribution of sympathy is epidemic. The New York Times called the man with a domestic violence history who, in 2015, shot up the Colorado Springs Planned Parenthood, killing three parents of young children, a gentle loner. And then, when the serial bomber who had been terrorizing Austin, Texas, was finally caught in March 2018, too many journalists uh, interviewed his family and friends and let their positive descriptions of the man stand, even though they were more valid than what we already knew. He was an extremist and a terrorist who set out to kill and terrorize black people in a particularly vicious and cowardly way. He was a 
quiet, nerdy young man who came from a tight-knit, godly family. The Times let us know in a tweet, while the Washington Post's headline noted he was frustrated with his life. Which is true of millions of young people around the world who don't get a pity party and also don't become terrorists. The Daily Beast got it right with a subhead about a recent right-wing terrorist, the one who blew himself up in his home made full of bomb-making materials. Friends and family say Ben Morrow was a Bible-toting lab worker. Investigators say he was a bomb-building white supremacist. Like other exceptional writers, for example Chavisa Woods and Susan Faludi, Solnit displays shining talent and craft for providing sobering text. A quote again. And then there are the Me Too and Time's Up movements. We've heard from hundreds, perhaps thousands of women about assaults, threats, harassment, humiliation, coercion of campaigns that ended careers, pushed many of them to brink of suicide. Many men's response to this is to express sympathy for men. The film director Terry Gilliam was the voice of the old ways when he said, I feel sorry for someone like Matt Damon, who's a decent human being. He came out and said all men are not rapists, and he got beaten to death. Come on, this is crazy. Matt Damon has not actually been beaten to death. He's one of the most highly paid actors on earth, which is a significantly different experience than being beaten to death. The actor Chris Evans did much better in this shift in perspective, saying, The hardest thing to reconcile is just because you have good intentions doesn't mean it's your time to have a voice. But this follow-up story to the Me Too upheaval has too often been, how do the consequences of men's hideously mistreating women affect men's comfort? Are men okay with what's happening? There have been too many stories about men feeling less comfortable, too few about how often women might be feeling more secure in offices where harassing co-workers have been removed, or at least a bit less sure about their right to grope and harass. Men are insisting on their comfort as a right. Dr. Larry Nassar, the Michigan State University doctor who molested more than 100 young gymnasts, objected on the grounds that it interfered with his comfort to having here to hear his victims give statements during his clinical criminal trial describing what he did and how it impacted them. These girls and young women had not been silent. They had spoken up over and over, but no one with power, sometimes not even their own parents, would listen and take action until the Indianapolis Star reported in 2016 on the assaults by Nassar and many other adult men in gymnastics. It was not the women's story until it was. It seldom is, or was. And Solnit. Solnit also digs deep into journalism and how it's locked into the American politics of late. I quote, Imagine that we were, decades ago, a society that listened to women, and that the careers of Harvey Weinstein, James Tovac, Bill Cosby, Les Moonves, Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Louis C.K. and so many others had been stopped in their tracks. Hundreds of lives would be better, but also the very news and entertainment world we live in would be different and better. Jill Filipovich noted in 2017, Many of the male journalists who stand accused of sexual harassment were on the forefront of covering the presidential race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. She notes that these particular men hold deep biases against women who seek power instead of seeking to acquiescence sex object status and speculates on how it influenced the election. 
all in all, this is a very needed book. Solnit provides the old, the current and ways to see soberly into the future with all the might and positivity that we can to topple misogyny and arm ourselves intellectually. A final quote. I come back to, again and again, a sentence by James Baldwin. It is the innocence that constitutes the crime. He's talking about white people in the early 1960s, ignoring the violence and destructiveness of racism. They're opting out to seeing it. This book is on sale on September 3rd. I've also had time to read a wonderful fictional novel named Your House Will Pay by the author Steph Cha. And I believe this book will be one of the big ones for this autumn when it is released. The first quote I have for you is a dialogue. We got our tickets already. We paid for them and everything. That doesn't mean shit. The genesis of this book is non-fiction. In 1991, Latasha Harlins was shot and killed by a store owner named Soon Ja Du. This sparked all sorts of nationalist and racist, racist tension and violence, naturally contrasted with the ra- racist violence and abuse that the black community in Los Angeles has been subjected to for decades. The year after the Los Angeles riots occurred. Charles' book jumps off from that event, but also expands it into a fictional work that reaches for the sublime. By subtly displaying how humans often interact in different groups, be it in the family, at work, with our loves, other groups of people, the police, the justice system, through means of everyday language that would make Mark Twain proud, Char has made a book that is not only intricate, but simple to follow. The reader is thrown into action and quickly learns who's who. Racial tension is brought to the surface in a way that makes me, a 42-year-old Swedish citizen, taste more than the visceral shocks to the system that Charles' simple and effective, highly effective plot and dialogue generate. One of the most radiant methods that Char uses throughout the book is to show how divides are not only created by between constructs like race and nationality, but also between family members, e.g. the mother and daughter relationship, and in, and in heterosexuality, e.g. how men and women can interact differently than men with only men and women with only women, in police departments, in the justice system, and even between different eras. Naturally, all these divides between humans are merely socially constructed, and Char highlights that fact beautifully. I quote, Miriam was so American she announced her own mother, a capital crime, pretty much, in a confusion culture. The simplicity in the writing of this book is its greatest grace, and provides the best framing for the story, which is simple and would undoubtedly have foiled were it not for the author's skills. Quote again, The club leader was behind Grace, so close his voice made her jump. Is there a problem? The hope on his face was disgusting. Grace willed her sister to keep her mouth shut. Miriam didn't even hesitate. I didn't come here to drink with the Simi Valley Hitler youth. We're not Nazis. The way he said it made Grace think he had to make the denial often. I've never had to clarify that I'm not a Nazi, said Miriam. 
Char has written a glass onion of a book that it's easily read and floats to my mind to and fro even a week after I finished it. The book is on sale on October 15th.
I've read the book Will by Will Self. It's his autobiography, and I did read the uncorrected proof, so bear with me. One part of me thinks Will Self is an absolutely astounding writer, and another thinks he's an overrated, solipsistic, far too wordy, gaudy, show-offy, and waste of talent. This is what I guess constitutes the first part of more than one of his autobiographical books. None may follow, but this one covers his earlier years throughout addiction. He references William S. Burroughs enough times to make me think he not only wanted to write this book as though he actually were Burroughs, which would be strange, as Burroughs himself wrote quite a number of autobiographical books in the midst of addiction, but then again, the book is so selfishly, pun intended, written that it's impossible to know. The result is a book that is written by an intelligent and acutely self-aware author. Self has created a book that delves into how people can act when in the throes of addiction. I guess many readers can loathe his experimental style, plus the fact that his entire book is written in the third person. Here's a quote. The May morning sunlight detonates against 1960s facade and its diamond-shaped window panes explode. Will senses the build-up of commuter traffic behind him as cars, trucks and vans hump along the Clapham Road towards the city centre, a steely testudo ever forming, dispersing and reforming. Will thinks of the desperate manoeuvre pulled off from the way from Kensington. You could have fucking killed yourself. No, really, you could have. Will's fond of Rockham Falls, Maxim. God invented sex in order to place man in embarrassing positions. Yet none, surely, are as shameful as his own, for he lurches across town, hobbled by his half-mastered trousers and underpants from one impulsive liaison to the next. Self is currently quite sober, and as such, he's delved into a domain that I feel is always a pain for writers, soberly trying to describe the feeling of being intoxicated. While I think Self pulls it off for most of the time, his psychogeography, a word he uses often, seemingly can't dissuade him from, u- from adding difficult words while creating a solipsistic world that the addict is almost always in. I feel like writers like that like writers like Willem S. Burroughs and Alan Moore has handled have handled descriptions of mayhem and debauchery far better than Self has, mainly due to my personal dislike of Self's style in this book. Sure, the made-up words and stylistic slurs probably describe how Self felt at the time, but great on me. I wish he would have tightened up and hence produced a more effervescent look back. I'm quite sure Self knows what he's doing. This book was very easy to read, which made me wonder what was wrong with me. Ultimately, Self's style is quite easily digested if one is able to circumvent all the trappings, of which there are quite a few. I can't say I enjoyed this book, nor that I will remember it fondly, but it's an interesting look into the current mind of an intelligent person who was a massive drug addict a couple of decades ago. Sadie Smith, Grand Union This is the first Zadie Smith book I've read, a collection of short stories, most most of which are very short. The first one hit me well. In a matriarchy, you'd hear women boasting to their mates. I subsumed him in my anus. I really made his penis disappear. I just stole it away and hid it deep inside myself until he didn't even exist. It's all in the middle of a story that is obviously written by a person who didn't exploit the material for the sake of igniting shock and awe. 
In other words, Smith is far away from Brett Easton Ellis and his ilk. Another quote. My son asked me if the young man was sick in the head, which is our downtown downtown euphemism for batshit crazy. But my daughter, who is very, very savvy, said, no way, look at his clothes. I thought that was an interesting answer. It meant she was becoming an American. It meant she now refused to believe rich people can be batshit crazy. Some of the conversations between Americans and Jamaicans were good to read. The lack of obvious plot felt fresh and lovely. On the other hand, I'm left with a feeling that I breezed through the stories. They were, they were easily read for sure, but I won't remember many of them, only the sentiment that this collection left me with. It's a good feeling, and I will read Smith again. Brett Anderson, Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn I enjoyed Brett Anderson's first autobiographical book, Cold Black Mornings, immensely. Anderson proved to be eloquent, engaging and terse, all in good ways. This second book should never have been. I mean, the first chapter of the book is the book I said I would never write. The first one finished where Suede were just about to hit the big time, which they did. Quote, the response to Suede was so dis disproportionate that there seem to be very few historical par parallels. And while it's not something that I'm particularly proud of, it's something that needs to be addressed as it became an integral element to our story. For those who weren't there, or who have forgotten it, it might give a sense of the scale of the media reaction to say that even before the debut album was released, we would end up gracing 19 front covers. It was a phenomenon that of course was bound to have pernicious consequences, not least with Bernard's later rejection and drift away from the band. But while the frothy delirium still seemed like fun, we just gripped onto the seat in front of us and, and enjoyed the ride. There's a lot to be said for Anderson's ways of going about the ride. I quote, Most rock bands tend to follow the same predictable trudge through the same predictable roads, through the same predictable checkpoints, as preordained as the life cycle of a frog or something. And so the tale is always going to have an air of inevitability, especially when everyone knows what happens in the last chapter. So instead, what I'm going to try to do in these pages is to use elements of my own story as a way to reach out and reveal the broader picture. To look at my journey from struggle to success and to self-destruction and back again and use that narrative to talk about some of the forces that acted on me and perhaps maybe to uncover some sort of truth about the machinery that whirs away, often unseen, especially by those on whom it is working, to create the bands that people hear on the radio. This might seem a little ambitious, but it's my way of trying to claim some sort of ownership of the second part of my story. A story that was so assiduously documented by the media, and which certainly doesn't read, need another retelling in that conventional form. That is, miraculously, what saved the book from becoming another predictable book in the annals of rock lore. Anderson is acutely aware of the fact that he did become a bit of a rock cliché with drugs and what Neil Tennant from Pet Shop Boys calls the imperial phase, i.e. the time span where a band thinks it's mastered the art form, are concerned with all the problems that easily and quickly follow. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, and it's very beneficial in this case. 
As a Suede back, fan back in the day, and for the first two albums, I must add, I recall Anderson and Bernard Butler sniping words at each other via music mags. It was a complete debacle, a fight which I think shouldn't have happened in public. Anderson writes about it in a beauteous and apologetic fashion without drawing it out for too long. And this is but one of uh, many examples of the strengths of this book and how hindsight really does play a major key. Or to quote Anderson quoting Heraclitus, I paraphrase, A man does not step in the same river twice. The man is not the same and the river is not the same. Another quote from the book. Young men plunged into the crucible of success are by their very nature immature and instinctive and impetuous. These are the fiery ingredients that also spark drama and creativity and the thrilling imbalance and sense of potential disaster that make the spectacle so exciting to witness. Without this essential flaw in their characters, the whole thing would be far less interesting, but of course it's a precarious house of cards, always teetering on the point of collapse taping over the cracks and disregarding the damage we spotted on regardless. Superfan David Barnett wrote Suede, the authorised biography, a highly gossipy and insightful book. Where Anderson's first book did not go was into that territory, which this one dips its toes into. It's not a bad thing, but if I were to chip away at something, it's some minutiae that's frankly boring. Recalled stuff from Suede recordings quotes from Anderson's personal driver etc just turn me off luckily there's not much of it in this book one of the good things with this book is that it's not merely a look back in time here's an example and I quote this would probably get me into trouble and I'd love to be proved wrong and maybe I'm too out of touch to see it clearly but unfortunately I can't see where the game-changing scenes and the movements of the digital age are likely to come from I feel that the defining cultural events of our times, social media, has cast such a huge shadow, and even though people still passionately love music, it has become sort of a lifestyle accessory rather than a central defining core of their being, and because of that its impact and its generational resonance has waned. And while I'm up on my soapbox, I might as well take the opportunity to blather on a little more about some broader, broader issues. I feel that it should worry everyone deeply that since the decimation of the music business at first by internet piracy and then the proliferation of streaming services, it's increasingly hard for artists who make left-field material to make a living. Of course there are always anomalies, but I've noticed that the sort of new bands that should have had healthy, lucrative careers back in the 70s and 80s and 90s make interesting non-commercial music are struggling to survive. Clearly this raises class issues. Are we to assume that the working class voices will be virtually unheard in alternative music in a few years time because it just no longer seems a viable career and the only way left field bands can survive if they are bankrolled by well-off parents? However, there are wider and more troubling implications beyond this. Right now, it's a phenomenon that probably doesn't unduly worry these denizens of the upper echelons of the music industry who are still earning big money making mainstream pop music, but it really should. The strata of the creative world are all linked, and in many ways codependent rather like an ecosystem. Not wishing to sound oversimplistic, it seems to me that the more creative marginal musicians have always been, the creative uh, creatures that the commercial artists have fed off, diluting and sanitizing and popularizing their ideas. In the same way that if plant life were to die out, it it would create a chain of events that would lead to the extension of carnivores. And I believe that the work done at the margins of the music industry is utterly essential to the health of the music world as a whole. 
Without this motor that generates ideas, we can envisage a sort of bleak culture of vacuum whereby the only starting points that commercial artists that are increasingly based on copies of previous historic successes leading to a horribly nostalgic ersatz music landscape that is meaningless and devoid of any traction or worth or vitality. Some might argue that we arrived at that point years ago. The success of X Factor and Four Town amongst other pop movements would seem to support their case, and mainstream music has always been a proclivity against sentimentalism, but at least there are glimmers of interesting work. And some of uh, the most insightful, uh, honest things laid bare in this book are among the most painful to read, and I quote again, Bernard's father, who had been ill for some time, died on the eve of the tour. Ashen-faced, we all received the news while in a hotel in New York. For some insane reason, instead of cancelling the tour and giving him time to grief and the space to try and recover, we just truncated it. It was a terrible, terrible mistake as Bernard became understandably more and more withdrawn and distant as the days move on. And I yet to develop the emotional maturity to be able to reach out and comfort him as a friend began to cravenly hide within the excesses of life on the road. As we pulled in different directions, our relationship began to splinter and we began to demonize each other, creating a chain of events from which we would never ever recover. Altogether, this is a quite beautiful book, one that sparkles with many terrific stories and insight. Few writers possess possess the quiet Elan of Anderson, a writer who is as good in book form as in his song lyrics, a rare gem among writers.